Well, I want to talk to you this morning out of the fifth chapter of Luke's Gospel. If you are visiting with us, we are in an ongoing study through the Gospels, and we are harmonizing the Gospels, meaning that we are studying them in an integrated fashion, and we're, we're just walking with Jesus in a chronological order through all four Gospels simultaneously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this morning, we're going to see a miraculous event, and uh, Jesus calling, permanent calling of his first disciples. So read with me the first 11 verses of chapter 5 in Luke. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and that's the same as the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he, had his, he and, his, and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Most of us are aware that Jesus, one of his very common methods of teaching was that he taught in parables. And he taught in parables, really, for, for two reasons. One, to... Uh, reveal the truth of the kingdom through illustrative stories and, and people who had ears to hear and eyes to see, people who, who, who would understand would get it more clearly. But also he taught in parables to obscure the truth from those who didn't have eyes to see and didn't have ears to hear and who were really kind of oblivious to the truth. So while he taught the same way, it was, a, it was kind of a beginning of the separation, if you will, of the sheep and the goats. And people who really were seeking the truth, they, went, they got it, they got it. But people who were not, they were just kind of hangers on, uh, would miss it entirely. So he would deliberately do that. And so kind of along those lines, I want to I share with you this morning a, a story, a, a parable, if you will. And... And as I do so, as I, as I share this with you, I want you, I want you to think along and, and see if you can ferret out the, the message, the truth, uh, for our own lives and for the life of the church. Sharks like this. There's a, a dangerous sea coast that was notorious for shipwrecks. And those shipwrecks were frequent and on that seacoast, there was built a crude little life-saving station. The building was just simply a hut. And there was only one boat, a small rescue boat. And a few devoted crewmen kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tirelessly searching for any, any people who might need help. Many lives were saved by their devoted efforts. After a while, the station became famous. Some of those who were saved and as well as others in the surrounding area wanted to become part of that work. And so they, many of them gave their time and many gave money for its support. New boats were bought, additional crews were trained, and the station grew. Some of the members became unhappy that the building was so crude and inadequate. 
They felt a larger, nicer place would be more appropriate as the first refuge for those who have been saved from the sea. And so they replaced the empty emergency cots. They re replaced them with hospital beds. They put better furniture in, the, in an enlarged building. Soon the station became a popular gathering place for its members to discuss its work and to simply visit with each other. They continued to remodel and decorate until the station more and more took on the look and the character of a club. Few members were interested in going out on these life-saving missions, so they hired professional crews to do the work on their behalf. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club, on their emblems and certainly on their stationery. And even there was a ceremonial boat, lifeboat, in the room where the club held its initiations. One day, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in many Many boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, they were bruised, they were sick. The beautiful new club was terribly messed up, and so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside where the shipwreck victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether as being unpleasant and hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted on keeping life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, they were still called a life-saving station. But those members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own station somewhere down the coast. As the years went by, the new station gradually faced the same problems as the previous one had experienced. It too became a club, and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. The few members who remained dedicated to life-saving began another station. History continued to repeat itself, and if it said if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. What's the point? What would that be a, an illustration of, do you think? Where am I going with this? I would submit to you, this is a striking illustration of the history of the church. We start out so, so excited, so hungry, so desirous of seeing people rescued. And yet over time, the church becomes a club, ingrown. Now certainly there is an aspect of the church that is social, and we are in many ways a social institution. That's not necessarily a wrong thing. But that can't be at the expense of being a life-saving station. Years and years ago, when I was first a member of Hope, and, and early on, we, we called ourselves an emergency room where people could be brought, people would come, and, and there was great enthusiasm to bring people whose lives were in danger we're a hospital. We're the emergency room of a hospital. And I thought that model was absolutely perfect. You see, the work of evangelism, and, and please don't misunderstand me, we don't save people. God saves people. The work of evangelism is the work of announcing the good news, of telling people. You and I can't save anybody. We, we announce good news to them. We, we tell them there's a great hope. But that work of evangelism, of spiritual life-saving, if you will, is nonetheless the purest, truest, noblest, and I think most essential work the church will ever do. We are Jesus' representative. We are the body of Christ. We are his mouthpiece. We are his hands and his feet, the church. We're the best thing going. Do you know that? 
sometimes as pathetic as we are, we're still the best thing going. The work of fishing men and women out of the sea of sin, the work of rescuing people from the waves and from the breakers of hell, think about this with me, is the greatest work the church is called by God to do. Freely you have received, freely what? Give. You've been, you've been saved, God has saved you. Someone told you, go now, go and, and tell other people. Rescuing people from sin is God's great concern. Let me say that again. Rescuing people from sin is God's great concern. He was so concerned that he sent his son, didn't he? He sent his son to this earth to preach, to proclaim. He sent his son to die and to be raised from the dead. All for the very purpose of saving people from sin. Let me read to you some familiar verses. John's Gospel, chapter 3. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Would you say that this is God's great concern, is to see people saved? Absolutely. He gave his son toward that end. We go on, and it's not only that. Jesus himself says, recorded by Luke, that that he came to seek and to save what was lost. The whole point of Jesus' mission, the whole point of his life was to seek out and to save that which was lost. The Holy Spirit. Paul writes to Titus and he tells us that the Holy Spirit gives to those who believe the washing of rebirth and renewal. And so the point I want to make is that the the Trinity, all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, The whole trinity is at work in the ministry of saving men and women from sin. God is all in. He has totally invested all three members of the Godhead in seeing men and women saved from sin. Evangelism, again, is the great concern of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Is this a big deal? Huge. Huge. And this concern began way, way back in the beginning, in the garden. You recall in Genesis, when God created man, he put him in a place called the Garden of Eden. And God gave him stewardship over it, and God gave him absolute free run of the place, except for one thing. He said, there's this one tree, I don't want you to eat of this tree, because the day you eat of it is the day you will what? You'll die, you'll be separated. And Adam and his... Bride Eve disobeyed. They disobeyed. But God in his faithfulness promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He promised that he would redeem them. He promised that he he would one day do away with sin. That one day Satan would be crushed. One day. God is faithful to his promise. But he goes on and and he carries that promise down through the history of man. And we come to Abraham. And in, in his covenant with Abraham, God promised Abraham that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. And that blessing would be because of Jesus. Jesus was going to come at, at the appointed hour. Abraham, the progenitor of the, of the nation of Israel. And Jesus would come, and through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. In the covenant at Sinai, you see the theme rehearsed again. When God called Israel to be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. God is saying, you're to be a kingdom of my witnesses, my witnesses to the world, to draw all mankind to me. God gave Israel his law, 
and His law was to govern their life in all dimensions, their ceremonial life, their civil life, and their moral life. And His law was the way to life. And He said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. Inherent in keeping God's law, inherent in keeping God's truth, is blessing. Your life is blessed. It was always God's intent that they would keep his law, that they would be a blessed nation, and all the pagan nations around them would see them flourishing. They would be his witnesses. You see, God always has a witness. He always wants witnesses to him and to his purpose to save people. God's people were to share in his concern for the lost. You have to ask yourself this question. Do I share in God's concern for the lost? How much do I share in his concern for the lost? It's a critical question, and it's one that every Christian must ask themselves regularly. Moses was so desperate for the salvation of his own rebellious people that he cried to God in the book of Exodus, He says, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses was so concerned, he was willing to have God blot him out of the book of life. The Apostle Paul will say the same thing. If you go to the book of Romans in chapter 9, he echoes that same sentiment. that That his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters would be saved. And if not... It, that he would, he would forfeit his own, his own salvation if that were possible. This, it, it reflects a passion. It reflects a, a desire to be in tune with God and his desire that, that people be rescued, that people be saved. People are precious to God. How many know that God values people? He values us. We're the apple of his eye, his creation. We've been made in his image. We are significant beings. We mean something to him. He's not made us robots, however. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, we're reminded that he who wins souls is foolish. Oh, no. He who wins souls is what? Wise. The implication is that you you really are wise. You're in tune with God if you are a person who has the same passion that God has for the lost, if you're winning souls. Now, winning souls means that you, you are just consistent at sharing the good news with people. And people... How many know that, that you, if you just talk to enough people, you're going you're gonna to bump into people who just, just randomly, I say that tongue-in-cheek because we know that it's by design, God's design, but from our human perspective, you just bump into enough people who will want to become believers, right? But a wise person wants to do what God wants them to do. Does that make sense? And if we have the same concern that God has for the lost, and we are about his business, we are wise. We are wise. The Lord told Daniel, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Same idea. God is consistent. Evangelism, if you will, was the great concern of the New Testament church. All you have to do is read the book of Acts and you see that immediately after Pentecost, new believers were totally dedicated to God and they were dedicated to winning others to him. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, that, that marvelous passage, we read that as they dedicated and studied themselves at the apostles' feet, they shared with each other and they praised God they came to have favor with all the people. And as a result of that, and, and drawing close to the Lord, and the Lord working in them and through them, the Lord added daily to their number uh, many who were being saved. Thousands of people were getting saved there in Jerusalem. Why? Because the New Testament church 
had this same passion for the lost that the Lord did. Do you know that the Christian life, and to live the Christian life, it's a paradox? What's the paradox of the Christian life? What do you think? What's the paradox of the Christian life? You find it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. If you want to what? If you want to save your life, you must lose it. And if you lose your life for his sake, you will what? Find it. In other words, you'll never realize what it really truly is to be a Christian unless first you're willing to lose your life that you have today. You have to be willing to die to yourself. Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. You must pick up your cross and follow me. You'll never pick it up and follow unless you are willing to first deny yourself. You can't even count yourself a disciple of his truly unless that is the case. So the Christian life is really paradoxical. You, you have to die... You have to be willing to lose your life before you can really, truly find it. And you do it for his sake. Again, it goes back to, Lord, what is your passion? Now, most people today, and many, many Christians, are more concerned about their passion, what they want, what's going on in my life, my agenda, my issues, my priorities. And, and tragically, uh, I think it's safe to say that many Christians... God is not their first priority. God's priorities are not their first priorities. They're busy with life. They're busy with their jobs. They're busy with kids. They're busy with this and that and the other thing. And somehow God gets crowded out. But the challenge for us is to be people truly who are willing to lose our life. Now, this is true with respect to evangelism. This is true with respect to soul winning, if you will. We, we won't do it unless we're willing to lose our life, lose ourselves. Saving other people or seeing other people saved, announcing the good news, you have to lose yourself. And in so doing, the task, we can't better fulfill the task of seeing others Convinced and others one to Christ. In a sense, the life of evangelism involves sacrificing the greater for the lesser, the worthy for the unworthy. It is the opposite of the philosophy of our culture. The loveless, brutal philosophy of survival of the fittest. And, and people live that way. The heck with that person, the heck with them. As long as I get mine, don't bother me. I'm concerned with my own personal peace and prosperity. That's a little politer way to say the survival of the fittest. This is the way of the fallen sinful world. The Christian life is the opposite of that. And again, I go back and, and, and I just I say, ask ourselves, how committed am I to the passion of God's heart? How committed am I? Do I really, really see people through the eyes that God sees them through? Am I making sense here? God's way. What is God's way? God's way is the way of redemption. That's what this book is all about. It's the way of redemption. We have gone away. We have gone our own way. And God seeks to what? Redeem us, to bring us back, to buy us back. God's way is the way of redemption. And that's way, that way is that of the strong being willing to die that the weak may live. God's word is absolutely clear that if we are committed to seeing other people born again and saved, those people without Jesus Christ, we will have to lose ourselves in order to reach them. 
It just simply means you can't be prideful. You can't be concerned about what people say to you, say about you. you, can't, you you've got to be willing to get out there and risk. But if I'm just going to be concerned about preserving myself and not looking foolish, none of us likes to hear the word no, do we? I mean, that's why you became a salesman, because you love to hear the word no. No, no, no. None of us likes that. Because we interpret it as a personal affront, a personal attack, and, and none of us like to be attacked. We want to be protected. I want to survive. I want to just get along. I don't want to stand out. But in order to fulfill God's passion and God's heart, you've got to die to all that stuff. You've got to say, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm going for it. It's not about me anymore. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. It's about his will, his kingdom, his purpose. I love him. I love him. I want him pleased. I want to bless him by fulfilling that which he is in his heart, the passion of his heart. Now, Luke, in our passage this morning, Luke divides his passage into three sections. The first section is verses 1 through 3, and that's very simply the Jesus teaching, teaching the people and teaching from Peter's boat. And the second section is verses 4 through 7, and that encompasses the miraculous catch of fish. And then the third section, verses 8 through 11, is the spiritual application of this miracle. And this is where we really want to get to. Everything I've shared with you is kind of like a preamble. Now we get into the heart of the passage. Now Luke says, first of all, Jesus is teaching and preaching. What is he teaching and preaching? How to win friends and influence people, right? I'm okay, you're okay. No, what's he teaching preaching? The word of God. Notice people are crowding around him to hear what? They want to hear what God has to say. They say, well, I'm not so sure people today want to hear what God has to say. You don't know because you don't ask. <laughs> start, start talking to people about God. Start talking to people about what God has to say. You'll find, you'll gather a crowd. Now, surely it'll be a mixed crowd. But people want to hear and you again you have to know in your heart of hearts that God is working in people's lives and everyone is at a different place on that continuum and there are going to be people who when you share when you talk it's going to strike responsive chords how many times have you sat out here and I have said something and you go you've gone to yourself how did he know I can't tell you over the years how many people come up to me and said you were speaking right to me. I said, that wasn't me. That was him. God knew exactly where you were. He knew. He dovetailed all this himself. The same thing is true when you and I go out and we announce good news. People want to hear good news, do they not? You say to them, you just go up and say, hey, did you know I have good news for you? This, what's the good news? Your sins can be forgiven. I don't have sins. Your sins can be forgiven. Don't be deterred by what they tell you. You know they're sinners. You already know. And so you just say, no, no, no. Your sins can be forgiven. I don't have sins. I don't believe in sin. I, I know, but your sins can be forgiven. <laughs> I promise you, if you're insistent and you're not put off by their pushback, because you know the truth, they don't. You know the truth. You're going you're gonna to break down those barriers, I promise you. But you've got to be willing to what? Deny yourself. You've got to be willing to die. You've got to be willing to say, it doesn't matter what people say to me. I'm on a mission, God's mission. Am I making sense? Now, I know some of you are going, oh, man, I could never envision myself doing that. And you never will if that's your attitude. But right now, if you're saying that to yourself, you ought to be saying, God, I want to be bold for you. I want to be someone who actually 
goes fishing or goes rescuing people. I want to be someone who every day, at least I talk to one person. The law of averages. Just simply the law of averages, notwithstanding the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to guide you and direct you to people who what? Who want to hear what kind of news? Good news. Jesus is preaching good news. And people are crowding in around him to hear the good news. What's the good news? The good news of salvation. The truth about entering the kingdom of God. That God is good. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. He loves you. I told this guy at the gym not too long ago, I said to him, He'd just given me a hard time. And I stopped and I said, you know what? I said, God loves you. Jesus loves you. He says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. And he ran away from me. <laughs> so every time I see him, every time I see him, he knows what I'm going to say. He says, I know, I know, I know, I know. Don't tell me. He is under some heavy conviction. In fact, Friday morning, he came up to me Friday morning, and it was really out of character. He came up to me Friday morning, and I'm looking at him, and I'm saying to myself, he's hanging around here. And uh, I said, uh, is there something you want to tell me? Something you want to? He said, well, I just... Just wanted you to know that I appreciate you. Just got to be consistent. Right, Ron? Just got to be consistent. No, Jesus is preaching the glorious truth. I love this. That the spiritually poor can be made rich. That the spiritual prisoners can be set free. That those who are spiritually blind can receive their sight. And that the spiritually oppressed can be delivered from their bondage. People say all the time, you hear this, I've heard it, hear it all the time. I just can't quit doing it. I just can't stop myself. I can't. They've got some fetish, some habit, some thing. I, can't, they can't, I just can't get over it. I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you a Christian? Are you born again? Well, uh, yeah. There's incongruity here between what you're telling me. If you're born again, you have been what? Set free. You are a new creation. The old things have gone. You have put on the new. You have put off the old. This is the truth. You need to walk in it. Sometimes I even question, are you even born again? Maybe you need to get born again. Maybe you need to be recreated. Become new so that you can, in fact, leave off the old. <laughs> I hear this, too. Well, you, you, I'm working on my issues. <laughs> I used to have a professor in college who, when we would hear something like that, something just, just drive him up a wall, he would grab his stomach and he would say, how many can see that I'm on the verge of vomit. <laughs> he was a very colorful professor, as you might imagine. <laughs> I'm working on my issues. No, 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 you don't work on your issues. You are born again. You're a new creation. Amen. Jesus has all that stuff taken care of. Well, how come I'm not experiencing it? Because you're not walking by faith. Our job is very simply to what? Walk in faith, to walk in obedience. That's our job. He says, trust me. Trust me. Your job is not to dredge up your past. Your job is not to 
be all worried about your potty training when you're a little kid. Your job is not to worry about what your mother did or didn't do, your father did or didn't do, and all that stuff that, that clouds our life. Jesus has all of that. He has your back. Your job is to say, okay, I'm new. I'm new. I'm going to walk with you. And when you take that first step of faith, you actually take it. His power comes to bear in your life and you go, wow. And you gain momentum. How many found that to be true? Oh, not everybody. Okay. I'm telling you, the Christian life is not complex. It's a life. It's a whole brand new life that he gives us. He says, now walk in it. Jesus is preaching the good news of forgiveness. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. I am forgiven. In my old life, I, I used to love to go to Las Vegas and play the crap tables. And I was always, always, always looked at the, you know, the croupiers and the guys handling the, the stick and everything, and the chip guys. And every time they'd change shift, I, I, I'm fascinated by the, the guys who go like this. They got nothing. They're, nothing. They're not holding on to any chips. That, oh, that image always stuck with me. And, and, and now I say, I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm free. Satan has nothing on me, and he has nothing in me. I'm free. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. I have eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. He says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. You can take this to the bank. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You have it. And you'll not be condemned. And you have crossed over from death to life. <gasps> I can exhale. I can exhale. I've crossed over from death to life. Now here's Jesus preaching this great news. Just preaching. And people are hanging on every word because they want to hear good news. And they're crowding in on him. So to make some space between himself and the crowd, he spies out these two boats that are sitting on the shore. And he chooses to get into one of the boats. Whose boat does he get into? Ah, Simon Peter's boat. Now, do you suppose that he got into Simon Peter's boat as a coincidence or was this a random thing? He just kind of got into a boat and it's just a boat. Or maybe is there some design there, do you think? I think so. Remember, Jesus does nothing without a purpose. Every word, every action, everything in his life has divine purpose. And he works in and through us for the same point. He wants our lives to have purpose. See, it was not just a time to step into Peter's boat. It's now time to step into Peter's life. Now Jesus is going to go to work with Peter. It's the beginning. Now, if you go back to John's Gospel, in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, brings Peter to Jesus, says, we've found the Messiah. We think we know him as the Messiah now. And so he introduces his brother Simon to Jesus. Jesus meets Simon for the first time. Later on in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4 and in Mark's gospel chapter 1, there are parallel passages that speak of a second interaction between Jesus and Simon and Andrew and James and John. And this second interaction is the first calling to draw them in to simply be his followers. He's calling them to follow him. And after that, they do go on a short tour with him, but when they get back, they go back to fishing, as now we see in Luke's gospel. So now in chapter 5 of Luke, we read their final call 
when they do abandon uh, their fishing business and become permanent full-time followers and disciples of Jesus. Now Jesus targets Peter in particular because Peter would be the recognized leader of the group of 12. And he would bear the most amount of influence, the greatest influence on the rest of them. And in fact, you see this reflected throughout the Gospels. And uh, more particularly, I think it's interesting, at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus has already risen from the dead. And he's made a number of appearances, a couple of appearances already to his disciples. And he tells them to, to wait, to remain with him, remain on him. He's going to come back and, again. And so Peter, impulsive Peter, I don't know if you have that impression on him, but, you know, he, he, the greatest thing, I think, is when he's in the boat and Jesus is walking on the water to him at night. And Peter says, is that you? Is that you? If that you command me to come out on the water. I, I don't know. Who of us would do that? <laughs> I would wait for Jesus to get to the boat. I'm not going to say, come on, Jesus, come, if that's you, command me. Is that a bit impulsive? I mean, you know, Peter's a unique guy. So here's Peter. He's, he just can't wait for Jesus, so he gets impatient. And he tells the other, the other guys, he says, you know what, I'm going back fishing. And he's so influential, they all say, okay, we'll go fishing too. So whatever Peter does, they do. That's my point. So Jesus uh, will target Peter because he is so influential. Now, after Jesus finishes speaking, verse 4, if you go back to verse 4 with me, he says to Simon, put out into deep water. Not the shallows, deep water. And let down the nets for a catch. Now, deep water for a fisherman requires very large nets. Maybe you've watched, uh, uh, you know, the Evolution Channel or National Geographic. I call that the Evolution Channel. <laughs> or, or some of the fishing shows, you know, where they, they have this, so these big, all these big fishing fleets and stuff. And they, and they let out these huge, huge, huge big nets. This is what we're talking about. Except these guys had to do it by hand. So these nets were big, they were heavy. And Jesus says, put out into deep water and let the nets down. Um, Simon says in verse 5, uh, Master, we have worked hard all night and caught nothing. You see, fishing was done at night. It wasn't done in the midday when Jesus is in the boat telling him to go out and lower the nets. We worked hard all night. We've let down the nets and pulled them back in. We moved the boats, let them down again, pulled them back in. We moved the boats, we let them down, we pulled them back in all night. We've been working our tails off, Jesus. We've caught nothing. They ain't no fish. And besides, now he wouldn't say this, but I'm, I wonder if he was thinking it. I can't say that he was. But it occurred to me, so probably I would think it. Besides, you're an ex-carpenter turned preacher. You aren't exactly a professional fisherman. People say that to me sometimes. They find out that I'm, I'm an ex-pharmacist, an ex-Amway distributor turned preacher. Is almost the way that's in tone sometimes almost relegates me to being insignificant in their mind. And I want to say to them, you want to spend a little time with me? But Jesus, he's undeterred, isn't he? Absolutely undeterred. And so Peter, no doubt, even though he may have been thinking that, he also thinks to himself, but then again, I've seen your authority. <laughs> I've seen your power. Your power over demons. And you healed my mother-in-law. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands how many people would like their mother-in-law healed. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. So Peter says, you know what? 
I mean, he's processing. Jesus says to do this, this crazy thing that doesn't make any sense to him. But he's looking and saying, you know, but I've seen you do some pretty incredible things. So because you ask, because it's you, because I have this experience with you, okay, I'll put out in deep water and I'll let the nets down. Don't you want to just cheer Peter? And when he lets the nets down, what happened? Yeah. Now, if Jesus, if Jesus' command to do this surprised them, imagine the effect and the result. It had to utterly dumbfound them. What happened? Man, the nets were full of fish. Amazing. Now, do you think that Jesus knows something they don't know? Does Jesus know something you don't know about your life and about the mission he's called you to? Absolutely. Does he know what he's doing? Does he know where the fish are? Can he direct us to the fish? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing's a mystery to him. We're kind of going around, duh, 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 duh. He says, go this way. Now, later, you recall, again, as a, as a signal of his omniscience, in, uh, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, it's, Jesus has to pay his taxes. Even Jesus paid taxes. Remember that? And what did he tell Peter to do? He said, go down to the shore. You'll catch a fish, a particular fish, and this fish will have what? The tax money in its mouth. Help me with that one. Can you? I mean... Peter says, okay, I'll do it. And he catches the fish, the fish has the coin, and he pays the taxes. That's cool, isn't it? <laughs> you see, with that miraculous catch of fish, Peter and his companions were witnessing a display of divine power. As Jesus gathered together in one location this vast number of fish that were now causing their nets to break. The harvest was unbelievable. So enormous was the catch that now it's being loaded into two boats and both boats are beginning to sink under the staggering weight of those fish. Now as they knew, remember these guys are devout Jews. And as they knew from the Old Testament, God not only created the world, but he also controls the world. He controls every creature. And he can summon the fish. He says, okay, now gather over here one place, we're going to catch you. He can, he, can, he can summon us, can't he? Listen to Nehemiah, Nehemiah's comments. So these are the Levites in the book of Nehemiah in and they're coming together and they're, they're reading God's words and they're confessing their sins and they're acknowledging God. Sound familiar? And they're leading the people and they're, they're standing up and they're praising God. And they say, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Boy, is that an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty? Listen to Psalm 104. The psalmist extols again God's sovereign control over his creation. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is a sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you form to frolic there. 
These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. Again, a picture of God's absolute sovereignty over all of creation. And in the book of Daniel, we see the same thing reflected in the very words of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, who in his pride thought, you know, this is, this is mine. I, I did all this. And God says, you know, I'm going to humble you, buddy. And you're going you're gonna to eat grass and you're going to be like an animal for seven years until you look up and acknowledge me. Sometimes I wonder if, if the troubles that so many people go through are God's hand of discipline on them and their troubles seem interminable. And it's very simply a result of pride. They will not humble themselves. They will, acknowledge, they will not acknowledge him. And so here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of that time, the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Don't you love that? My sanity was restored. In other words, I looked up. I went, okay, I give. I'm yours. Your will be done. Boom. It's the key the key to our lives and in, in the key to flourishing is repentance. Genuine repentance. You want your life to flourish? Repent. Look up. Turn to Him. And see if He doesn't open the windows of heaven. See if He doesn't grace your life. He says, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks, and their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Because you don't acknowledge him, because we don't praise him and thank him. And, and, and when you turn from the, the God of life and light, you, you turn to darkness. What a horrible way to live. Nebuchadnezzar is a classic example of that. Then I praised the Most High, honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? God is absolutely sovereign. And now our, our shocked, our amazed and even frightened fishermen know that they were witnessing confirmation of the truth that power belongs to God. These fish could not have assembled. They couldn't have caught these fish had, had God not ordained it. All power belongs to Him. The Lord Jesus had just revealed Himself to them to be the omniscient and omnipotent God, the all-knowing and the all-powerful God. And they're, they're aghast, they're amazed, they're astounded, and they are fearful. When Peter realized what had just happened and the, the realization of who was responsible, he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed personally. Realizing that the one who could see into the depths of the lake for the fish is the same one who could see into the depths of his own life. That left him undone. That left him feeling terrifically exposed. Isn't it interesting when, when God gives someone insight and they look into your life and they kind of read your mail and, uh, and you realize, whoa, you, you're, you, you're exposed, aren't you? And it leaves you, it leaves you a bit terrified. What else are they going to find out? What else are they going to know about me? It happens. So immediately now he falls at Jesus' knees. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a what? Sinful man. He sees now he has not a leg personally to stand on with respect to Jesus. Peter's a very competent man. He's a competent businessman. He's a fisherman. But now he sees his true self. Now, again, as being a devout Jew... 
he knew that God alone was to be worshipped. And yet he falls down before Jesus in a posture of a worshiper calling him what? Lord. What's Peter doing? He's acknowledging Jesus' lordship. Jesus' masterful teaching that Peter had listened to in that synagogue. His power and authority over the demons. The healing of his mother-in-law. And now this stunning catch of fish for which there was no human explanation whatsoever had brought Peter to the place where Jesus wanted him. And where was that place where Jesus wanted him? Do you think? To the recognition of his sinfulness. We are not going to make any progress in our life unless we recognize our sinfulness, our abject poverty, that we are poor spiritually, that we are enslaved spiritually, that we are blind spiritually. It goes back to Jesus' uh, sermon in that synagogue in Nazareth. Whatever Peter had thought of Jesus before this incident, he had no doubt now that Jesus was Lord. And he recognized his unworthiness to be in the Lord's presence. His attitude, Peter's attitude, I think, is, 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 is akin to, uh, if you recall, in uh, later on Luke's Gospel in chapter 18, the repentant tax collector who is overwhelmed by his sinfulness. And he stands back and he won't even look up to heaven, but he beats his breast and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. He looks at himself as no one else matters. He is the sinner. And Peter's response of fear, Peter's response of penitence here is typical of those who's, who stand in the presence of the Lord. They realize they're on holy ground. They realize they're in the presence of a holy God. And all they can do all they can do is, like Abraham described himself, as nothing but dust and ashes. Job himself said much the same thing. Job said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. All you can do. All you can do. You got no, nothing to claim. I got nothing. I'm dust and ashes. God, have mercy on me. You recall... Isaiah, after seeing a vision of God in his heavenly temple, Isaiah cried out in terror, Woe is me! I am ruined! It's all over for me! Why? Because I recognize now that I am a what? I'm a man of unclean... I'm a sinner. And I live among a people with unclean lips. I... What is it? It's a reflection. Jesus says, out, out of the inward parts come the overflow. That our, our lips, our mouth, and so forth. See, he just recognized, Peter just like them recognized. And in the terror of the recognition of his sinfulness, Peter wants to send the Lord away. I'm not worthy. Go away from me, Lord. But Jesus wanted to draw Peter nearer. You see, the very point at which the sinner feels the most alienation is the point at which the Savior wants reconciliation. We needn't fear recognizing our true condition because the Bible tells us and teaches us that God wants to draw us back close to Him. He wants to reconcile us to Him. But if you have no real felt need to be reconciled, if you're not in touch with your sin, it doesn't make any difference. David says this, Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What does God desire? What kind of sacrifices does He desire from us? A broken and contrite heart. So now Jesus, Jesus is going to seek to calm and reassure Peter. He says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There is no need for Peter to be terrified, because he is. There is a proper, by the way, a proper healthy fear of God. And we should fear God, should we not? God himself says in Deuteronomy chapter 13, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. 
and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. There's a certain kind of reverential awe that we should hold God in that causes us to be attracted to him. It's kind of like, you know, you stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon and you look over the edge and you go ho-hum. <laughs> right? No, you, something comes out of you that, that is the essence of awe. You go, whoa, look at that, wow. That's a long way down, that's pretty big. That's the essence of worship. It's, and it's like standing out at night in, in, a, in, a, in a clear night in some obscure desert or place where there's no cloud cover, no glare from city lights. You look up in the sky and you see stars and you look up and you go, wow, there is no God. <laughs> no. You just utter awe. You go, wow, look at that. It's a fearsome thing, isn't it? You're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's a fearsome thing. I don't want to fall. I don't know how many of you get, have a problem with heights. I, I get queasy just watching people on TV standing like that. It's a fearsome thing. It's a fearsome thing. You see, the kind of reverential fear that we are experiencing is different from the terror of the demons and from the terror of the sinner who fears the judgment of God and seeks to flee from his presence. No, we, we have this kind of awesome reverence for God. We fear him and that draws us to him. It attracts us to him. We're fascinated by him. The proper fear of the Lord results in wisdom, Proverbs 9.10 tells us, and and it results in worship. Psalm 2.11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, he says to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Wait a minute. Fear and trembling. Yeah, why? Because you have to recognize that who's at work in you? The infinite holy God is at work in you. He's working in you every single moment. Even when you're sleeping, he's at work in you. Wow, God's working. God's working in me. What's my job? My job is to work out what he's doing. He's working in me so that I can will and actually do what he wants. My job is not to wallow in my past. My job is to put my past behind me, as I said earlier, and to walk in faith directly, saying, trusting. He's working in me. He's doing a good thing in me. That's faith. And as I do so, I live out the reality of what God is doing. And I flourish. Am I making sense here? Divine grace and mercy. Divine grace and mercy would take Simon and his companions from cowering in fear to catching men. They had spent their lives catching fish. Now they would spend the rest of their lives catching men and point them to life. And this was Jesus' formal, it was his permanent call to these men to follow him. And Luke says they left everything to do that very thing. Think about this. At the very pinnacle of their earthly career. Now, they have just made the greatest catch of fish ever seen on that lake. At the very pinnacle of their career, they abandon their fishing business. They walk away from it. They turn their backs. They leave everything to what? Follow Jesus. Man, that's got to blow your mind. Here you are. You're at, the, you're at the pinnacle of your career. And you hear the call of Jesus. Say, you know what? I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him. Millions and millions of people have done it. And those who recognize their sinful unworthiness and embrace Jesus as the truthful, omniscient, omnipotent, holy, and merciful God, these are the ones he reconciles to himself. You just come humbly. He forgives our sin. He takes away our fear of judgment that sin causes. 
And he commissions us to the great task of evangelism, of discipleship making. He says, now go, go. As you go on your way throughout your day, you're going to encounter people. You're going to bump into people. People are going to smile at you. They're going to talk to you. You're going to get in automobile accidents. You're going to do all these things as you go on your way. Make disciples. Make disciples. Catch men and women. Catch them alive. Catch them alive. See, Peter and his companions caught fish and killed them for the fish market. Jesus says, no, catch men alive. Catch them alive and point them to real life. Go back to this story I shared with you at our beginning. Ask yourself very simply this. Am I more like the devoted rescuers who kept a constant watch over the sea or am I more like those who preferred to simply be members of a social club that was not interested in the reason for their existence in the first place? Rescuing the lost. Only you can answer that question. Amen? Lord, help us to see more clearly your call that we would reach out to those who don't yet know you, each one of us. We love you this morning. We do pray again, your kingdom come and your will be done more fully in our lives. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. As is our custom, I want you to turn to your neighbor, pronounce a blessing on your neighbor in the name of Jesus, and then I want you to add this prayer. Lord, make this person bold for you.